This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Hi folks, this week we're straying from our usual format a bit. This last weekend was the 2016 Brass Screw Confederacy Steampunk Gathering in Port Townsend, Washington, and our friend Nathan Barnett, who also happens to be the festival's grand poobah, suggested that we do a live version of the show in lieu of my usual show-and-tell type firearms history talk. Since it was Nathan's idea, we press-ganged him into a guest hosting. Since the discussion plus Q&A ran to almost an hour, we decided that it could stand on its own merits, so there won't be the usual headlines or media sections this week. That said, E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, is this week, and it looks like there will be some interesting things to talk about later this year, including the World War I-themed Battlefield One and the new Insurgency w, uh, excuse me, World War II mod Day of Infamy. Now, we already mentioned the Battlefield One trailer in a previous episode, episode, but we'll probably do an actual discussion of these games closer to their release dates, so be on the lookout for that down the road. Now before we get started, I'll just throw in the usual end credit stuff here and mention that if you enjoy this show, be sure to check out some of our other offerings over at SciCon, such as our Daily Tech News Roundup Geek Days or the ever-enlightening Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Show notes for this episode are at scicon.fm slash thf57, and you can contact us directly at historyfilesshow at gmail.com or by joining the Slack group from SciCon's page. And remember, Remember, we don't claim to be the last word on any subject, and we welcome input from you. For instance, Gordon referred, in this episode, Gordon referred to the watermark jousting revival event at Eglinton as happening in 1829, but it was actually 1839. Yeah, and so it's actually Victorian and not late Georgian. Uh, My error... Oh, 10 years off. The horror. It was horrible. At any rate, let's get to the main body of this episode, again recorded live at the Key City Theater in Port Townsend, Washington. History lives again. Welcome to episode 57 of The History Files. We are recording this today at the Brass Screw Confederacy in beautiful downtown Port Townsend, Washington. Yay! And we have a lovely um, theater audience with us today, listening in, and uh, they don't have to actually tune in later to find out what we're going to talk about. They get it right now. Yay! We're here at the Key City Theater. Key City Theater, yes. Uh, Very nice little establishment with lovely people who are running it, and we very much appreciate their uh, indulgence today. Uh, Today we're going to talk with Mr. Nathan Barnett. Uh, Mr. Barnett who actually earned that title as opposed to just being a, um, uh, a given. You actually earned the title Mr., as did I, uh, in English literature. 
Yes. So yes. he is actually a master. And psychology. And psychology. I Ooh, yes. I didn't know you had that one. Indeed. Yes. Only the masters in literature, I apologize. Oh, okay. literature and linguistics. And linguistics. Mm-hmm. However, that being said, like all the rest of us with master's degrees, uh, he's not working in his field. <laughs> However, uh, he has used these skills to uh, good effect, the skills of research and whatnot, and is a, you know, a leading light, certainly in this part of the world, in Western martial arts. And so today, what I really want to talk to Mr. Barnett about is the resurgence in interest in Western martial arts over the last, well, actually a couple of centuries, or half century, century? Certainly. Um, and how it's gone from being and just something that people said, yeah, whatever, uh, to, you know, that certainly took a second place seat to Eastern martial arts, to now being a co-equal. Quite. I think so. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, your journey into the world of Western martial arts. Absolutely, Gordon. So I um, started, like many people of uh, my age, uh, there was no... Uh, Western martial arts movement at that point. We had uh, Asian arts, uh, and I studied a lot of those. So at about the, age, the tender age of about 15, I thought, well, you know, karate is wonderful. I'm going to go out and learn how to you know, defend myself and get fit and all the other good things. Um, and, you know, it was something that was a good thing for a young man at the point. It was certainly good for me. And I did that for about 15 years. So... Fast forward uh, to right around 2000, all of a sudden, I get word, you know, yes, and I should give some credit, uh, I also uh, came across the SCA, which does a variety of things, the Society for Creative Anachronism, Mm -hmm. which does a variety of uh, fighting arts, uh, but most of it was uh, men in in metal suits uh, fighting, bashing themselves with... uh, large weapons in a form that wasn't martial artsy to me. Uh, it's sort of its own thing. It is its own thing. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of very talented uh, fighters out there who pursue that. But it wasn't, I dabbled and went away. I was like, mm, I want something else. Lots of us have done that. Yeah. Um, and uh, came back, uh, when I arrived in Washington State, uh, stumbled across, uh, upon the SCA again, and they were suddenly doing this wonderful fencing thing that was actually with metal swords. Uh, and it was primarily working with rapier, uh, which is the long, thin, thru- mostly thrusting, sometimes cutting weapon of the 15th and 16th centuries into the 17th. Uh, and I was intrigued. And then I was so intrigued that I stopped doing all other martial arts and just dove into uh, rapier play and what has come to me to be known as Western martial arts or historical European martial arts. So you had a long relationship, partnership with uh, Cecil Longino. I did. Cecil was one of the first people that I met. Uh, and uh, he, we were immediately uh, attracted to each other as antagonists. We fought uh, regularly for hours, had a great time. So the Uh, Northwest is blessed with a lot of um, very skilled practitioners of rapier play, some very serious scholars. Uh, Cecil already had a school going, which was called Academia della Spada. Which is Italian for uh, Academy of the Sword. Academy of the Sword, 
uh, and it was dedicated primarily to uh, rapier as it was practiced in England at that point. And We're talking Elizabethan. Now. Elizabethan, late right. Late 16th century. Late, well, late 16, yeah, late 16th, late 16th century. Yeah, but it was, yeah, really f- focused like on 1550 to 1600. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a key time for people killing each other in the streets with swords. Uh, very Wild West. Very much. In the middle of sophisticated London. <clears throat> but you had to be in the proper class to kill someone, though. Um, well, if you wanted to kill them with a rapier. With a rapier, right. Yes, yeah. you could kill, the, you could kill somebody with... <laughs> with a stone, if you're, yes. yes. You could be a drunken bludgeons were Bludgeons were also popular. Uh, knives, uh, yeah. We haven't gone very far. But, but to do this with, properly with a rapier, you had to be of at least similar class. Exactly. Very good. Um, we have to get that straight. One of, the, one of the beautiful things about that moment was that it really was um, a resurgence, I want to say, uh, rather than like the birth of Western martial arts, but a resurgence in fascination with... Uh, those uh, fighting arts. Uh, and a lot of that, uh, cre- the credit for that goes to the internet. Uh, like so many things, there were lots of people out in the world who were f- interested in the thing. They were an expert. They'd gotten their hands on a manuscript. Uh, <laughs> frequently, I found this manuscript in Italian. I know it's a fencing manuscript. I'm going to learn Italian so I can translate it, uh, which is a really rough path to walk. And dedicated people made that happen. Like Jarek Schweiner. Yes, I have a... First and foremost. Yeah, I have a beautiful manuscript that he translated from Italian on jousting. That is marvelous. It tells me everything I want to know. Yeah. But nobody else knows it because it's mine. (laughs) Well done. Just hold on to that. I'm going to. Um, But because many people who didn't just hold on to it, but published them out onto the internet. Uh, and so all of a sudden, other people who are doing these fighting arts and are scholars and really serious practitioners uh, are able to uh, come together and compare notes, um, debate, haggle, and we develop these amazing communities of fighting arts. I was going to say, uh, not only did you and Cecil spar with swords, but also a lot of verbal sparring. Well, a proper Elizabethan gentleman, of course, was not limited just to physical violence. <laughs> um, we uh, worked together with a school, in, in a school, we worked together as musical partners, um, and yeah, there was a lot, there might have been a little bit of drinking involved, and sometimes a lot of banter, um, the, sometimes, some of it antagonistic. What was it that you called your establishment a... Uh, a drinking club with a sword problem? Indeed. The drinking club with the fencing problem is, uh, <laughs> has been a, a worthy uh, term for some of what we did. I will have to stop and say, um, I, I want to come back to say uh, some things about the beauties of the Internet and also yes. um, the wonders of the Northwest, but I do want to make a, a promote Cecil uh, and his school, which is now South St. George uh, and has... Uh, Inclusive, included, it's expanded, I should say. Uh, it focuses on uh, classical fencing. Uh, so it's pushed up into the 17th, 18th, even early 19th centuries uh, for its art systems. Uh, he, is, uh, he is the protege of the Martinez Academy in New York. Yes. And they are probably one of the finest fencing schools in the country. So if you have interest in any fighting art, they get a plug. And that's one of the things I did want to bring out, too. The Martinez's, who you have studied under, uh, are true maestros. Mm. I mean, literally, they've 
got the credentials. The lineage going back some centuries. So yes. it's, a, it's a fascinating place. But I want to I hop back to uh, the advantages of the Northwest. So our little space here, not only do we have uh, a conflux of people who are fascinated with the scholarship, we also have two of the finest sword makers in the world right here. And access to those gentlemen has given, especially people like me, who don't, I should add, I didn't stay with rapier. I moved on to cutting weapons, uh, broadsword, if you will. And uh, the makers of those are usually very specialized. They started mass producing rapiers. Uh, in part, the Society for Creative Anachronism is so large that it supports a large community. But if you want to do a nice Scottish claymore or English backsword, broadsword, basket-hilted, you have to go hunting, especially back in 2000, 2005, yes. to find somebody to make you that piece of equipment. It's great to find a wall hanger out there, a, a sword that was made to look shiny, and yeah, you can, you can really do in some blackberry brambles in, with it, and uh, it, it's not a bad piece to carry around at a Renaissance fair, but to carry, find a properly weighted backsword or broadsword is really a hard way to go. We have those craftsmen uh, here in the Northwest, uh, Michael uh, Tinker mm -hmm. Pierce and uh, Gus Trim are uh, two of the finest makers. Their swords are you know, touted and sought around the world. Yes, I'm going to also uh, say on, on that that, yeah, they're magnificent. They're, they make really good stuff, and um, I highly recommend it to anybody who wants to bash things properly. Um, <laughs> right. Get those things. So that segues us into your specialty, which, as you said, you you know dropped out of doing mere pokey pokey uh, rapier Debasing. foolishness to good stout bashing with the broadsword. Absolutely. So uh, I'm a big fan of that. The elegance and refinement of uh, the point on fencing systems, uh, which. It can be argued are much more lethal, uh, but my personal love is in the space of the nice, heavy cleaving sword, uh, anywhere from 24 to 36, 39 inches long, a good inch and a half to two inches wide at the blade. It should weigh three to five pounds, lest anybody think that the uh, Conan image of heavy, lumbering weapons are uh, a real thing. They never were. Um, but that nice, heavy cleaving weapon is a thing of beauty. So you have combined both a love of, of cleaving things yes. and some serious scholarship. Uh, yes, there might have also been some alcohol. But yes, no, there was absolutely, uh, we've, there have been some many years of scholarship and study. And you seem to be, as far as I know, one of the few uh, individuals, at least in this country, who's really done some serious uh, study of George Silver. Ah, uh, silver. Yes. It was very late Elizabethan, 1790, or 1590s. Right. Yes. Um, and a, a serious proponent of the, broad, the basket-hilted broadsword, a good English weapon, as opposed yes, to those effete rapiers, the yes. Italians and the French. Uh, the Continentals are coming up and destroying our, destroying our men. Uh, yes. Uh, continue. <laughs> I can't continue as long as George Silver would continue, because he fills books with his... Uh, diatribes against the Italians and the Spanish, especially the Italians. And they're marvelous. They're wonderful. Um, it, English is xenophobia at its best. And one thing about 
Elizabethan authors is that their sentences, they sort of invented the run-on sentence, and, you know, paragraphs full of run-on sentences. Refined into an art form. And they never, ever, ever get to the point. Mm. And so it's, they're, they're fascinating to read, but just take some patience. Indeed. George Silver wrote, um, his first book is uh, called Brief and, uh, Par- excuse me, Paradoxes, on Def- Paradoxes of Defense, and is intended to be a description of how the complexities of, of proper fencing uh, are actually reflected best in the English systems as opposed to the uh, Italian systems. And you need to understand that the complexities are perhaps, it seems in favor of the Italian, but actually in favor of the English. But mostly what he does is tell you how much he hates, hates the Italians and sometimes the Spanish. Uh, he goes on for a, an entire book, and you have a sense that somewhere a couple years after he'd published it, dedicated it to his patron, and sent it on its way, that he realizes that he hadn't actually told anybody how to fight. <laughs> so he steps back and writes his brief instructions, which he never publishes, but it is actually a beautiful, clear, concise, okay, I'm going to tell you how to swing a sword and not make a fool of yourself. Uh, and that book is immensely useful, uh, for, among other things. In scholarship, one of the things that we frequently have is uh, a book written by a man who knows how to handle a sword really well for a bunch of men who know how to handle a sword pretty well, because we all have grown up in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries with swords. And if you want to see how it's done proper, you went to a prize fight or you went to a sal and you saw somebody who actually knew what they were doing. Uh, Fast forward, we have guns and you stop carrying swords and all of a sudden nobody knows how to use a sword anymore. And nobody stopped, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people stopped to write down the basics of how to handle a sword. Silver gives us some of that because he's writing to say, don't use those stupid Italian pokey weapons. Cleave people like good Englishmen for the love of God. And this is how you do it, because I know you're forgetting. Uh, so he ca- he's a reactionary. He's capturing what he thinks Englishmen have forgotten and writing it down for us. Message in a bottle to 1998. And what was the name of that one again? Brief Instructions. Brief Instructions. And so somebody obviously found it and published it at some point. It was, right. yes, fast forward, actually, I said fast forward to 1998, but I should say fast forward to 1898, I think, um, where it was discovered in the British Museum as uh, a manuscript stuffed into a corner. It was found by a captain who passed it on to, I believe it's Hutton. Yes, yes, Hutton. Uh, and uh, who is a famous scholar, and we, we'll, we need to come back to Hutton and, yes, the, we'll and the, Hutton. The, the Victorians and their, and their weapons. But this fellow finds this manuscript, and ter- it's extremely difficult to read. It's, uh, they, it was a shorthand that was common in the 16th, early, actually early 17th century. Silver writes this in about 1610, because he makes references to Great Britain, and therefore, obviously, uh, Charles, uh, not, excuse me, uh, right, Jacob is, yeah, it's a Jacobean uh, text. Yes. Uh, Elizabeth's dead. Um, so, uh, they find this book and, oh my gosh, here's the answer because we're getting destroyed. Our, our swords, our boys over protecting the empire don't know how to handle a sword. Here's a manuscript that tells us how to handle a sword like true Englishmen, which is something that they needed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Can't go off and learn it from somebody else. It has to be ours. Uh, 
And this wonderful text in bizarre handwriting unlocks all of these wonderful secrets of 16th century and early 17th century swordplay. So now, as you explain this to me, what is the actual point he makes about broadsword versus the rapier? What was the huge advantage of the broadsword? Um, there's, that's an awkward question, because I'm going to have to, I'm going to answer probably in a couple of ways, and then you'll remind me the one I told you. All right, <clears throat> that, that's fair. Um, the most interesting problem uh, is ti- an issue of time. Uh, the question is always who can hit who first and who can safely make defenses. Uh, and it's <laughs> worth mentioning that fencing is not about how to stab somebody. Uh, fencing is how to defend yourself. Uh, and th- the word, the root, here I'll throw out my linguistic master's degree, you know, the root of uh, fencing goes back to fending or defense. Uh, but uh, Silver's uh, steady point is that a man who makes a thrust in a straight line, which the Italians will tell you is the fastest and truest, uh, can displace the strength of that blow with the strength of a child, for as that long blade comes forward, it can be literally moved aside with a pinky, whereas the downright blow a good English assault uh, will cleave a man in two and nothing can safely set it aside. Yes. <laughs> About this. Very good. So I know that he discusses uh, the problem of also the, the, um, the Italian and Spanish school is that both antagonists can kill each other at the same time, mm. which is more difficult to do with the broadsword for both of them to die uh, because... There's the defense part of the broadsword, which is, of course, because it's English, far superior. Indeed. And he makes note of a a specific instance where two ship's captains get into an argument on the dock and proceed to kill each other. Yes. And they find, we have lots of, many men were found with many, many uh, mortal wounds through their body inflicted by rapiers. If I can stab you through the body six or eight times, you may take some days or weeks at dying. The beauty of the backsword the good English broadsword, is that I can simply lop off a man's right hand. We have agreed and reached a final decision in the conflict, and both of us go away without fear of tarnishing our mortal souls by having committed murder. An important distinction. I've merely lopped off your hand. You're still a human being. You can go away, and we can both do penance for having fought, but no one has committed murder. So you've committed mayhem, but not murder. I don't think there's, it's, one, it's not one of the ten. It doesn't count. <laughs> in modern parlance, uh, I would suggest that this is like filling someone with a magazine full of 22 bullets, which will kill him eventually, but perhaps not before he's killed you, Yes. as opposed to the sturdy 45 or 455, the good English version, uh, which, you, will, Thank you. which will drop a, a charging uh, savage in his tracks. Um, it may not kill him, but it'll certainly stop the action, which is all you really want to do. Yes. So Silver's, yeah, Silver's uh, broadsword was um, a better weapon for the defense of people at home, because you can defend yourself in the streets, and a better weapon for our uh, soldiers abroad, for they can make a definitive strike. Uh, to carry a rapier onto the field, no one really advocated. The, um, very few people actually thought that it was a good weapon of war. It was exclusively for the murder of your countrymen. And there you have it. Good jingoistic yes. <laughs> yes. attitude there. And it's so like those Italians and Spanish, hot-blooded to be just killing each other off 
we English, we just lop off each other's hands and go back to being good friends. <laughs> Makes drinking more difficult because you only have one hand. Well, now you can't hold your sword and drink. Oh, there's that. All right. It definitely reduces the violence level. Um, so one of the things that Silver also rails against are all these schools by foreigners mm. teaching young Englishmen these evil habits uh, yes. as opposed to having good Englishmen teach them good habits. Yes. No, it's, it, it's definitely a problem because you have these foreigners coming up from the South and taking all of our jobs. <laughs> Which actually is exactly what Silver's going on about. Uh, the English, the um, Italians and Span, especially the Italians at that time, are uh, very much in vogue. Uh, and the same fellow who comes up and teaches your, uh, your lad to fence is also teaching lads and ladies to dance uh, because they're very similar arts at the end of the day. Uh, and because they've come up from Italy, they know the latest songs and the latest dances. Of course, um, most of the culture is coming up from the South at this point. Uh, it's very fashionable to be Italian in the, England. Very much so. And you can imagine they're also coming up and stealing our women. <laughs> so Which it's is the just, unstated worst part of it all. Exactly, as any uh, yeah, xenophobe will throw, will throw in. Um, so yes, it's uh, basically about nationalism. And this one of these... It's one of those times where nationalism is really, uh, really on the surge. Interesting point that certainly among the English, their jingoistic urges nationalism seems to be highest under queens. Interesting. Yes, we can discuss that at length uh, over a few. I think that's another. There's another. There's another beverages. lecture there. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to discuss this at some other point. Perfect. So, at present, as opposed to these, most sals and whatnot are very much into the rapier and the small sword. Yes. Yet you personally are into the broadsword and cutlass as well. Uh, right. Mr. Barnett teaches a cutlass class here in Port Townsend and um, very similar weapons, although with very distinct differences. Right. And I would be remiss if I didn't say I also teach in Seattle uh, with, with uh, Lonin uh, yes. Sword School, which um, at Bwahaha. Yes, Bwahaha, which has a marvelous... Uh, Actually, it, it's an acronym Acron for is. the Barton Wright Alfred Hutton Academy of Hoplology and Antagonistics. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Wahahaha. And uh, oh, we have a question. Question? Actually, goes back to start over about swords. How much credit would you give the TV series Highlander for some of the interest? It probably, probably, I don't know how accurate it was, but it probably sparked a lot of interest, especially when the internet was in its early days. Interesting. Um, I have to. I have to admit, um, in my in my world, none, because I, I think I saw the movie, but it didn't. It was. It didn't inspire me particularly. I, I have, um, but it, that brings us to the point of the fascination that we have with swords. So Highlander is obviously, you know, and yours. You, that's I think maybe your t a touch point for you, yeah. and for many people, uh, you have Tolkien. I had. Um, I have had so many students arrive uh, at our door with uh, Galadriel's pendant at their neck, or um, you know that I want to. I want. I've got my elven sword blade, and I want to learn how to fight with it. Or I want to be Aragorn, and I understand those sentiments. I think I did too. <laughs> However, um, so we are informed certainly by our myth systems, by our uh, our fiction and fantasy, uh, and the. 
I think I want to take that and say we've always been fascinated with that with fighting arts and especially the sword and to kind of steer it to Bwahaha and uh, the Victorians uh, as well that sword art and the resurgence of sword arts is for the Victorians it was certainly Arthur uh, the Arthur legends are so important to them uh, well there was the <clears throat> a lot of the beginning of the resurgence in that interest goes back to the 1820s and there was the the joust at I can't even remember where it was. Um, anyway, in 1829, which got rained out, but they pulled armor from the British Museum uh, and put it on, and they trained their horses and stuff, and they were all prepared to go break lances against one another. Um, and the, the Victorians were, were, pardon me, pre-Victorians. Uh, this is still late um, late Georgian. Georgia. They really were getting interested in a lot of an, the antiquities. Uh, there was, of course, the Greek revival, and but but an interest in themselves, and especially the Arth- the Arthurian legends, and so which eventually becomes like the pre-Raphaelite movement. Exactly, yeah. Eventually morphs into that. So I guess a lot of the resurgence in the earlier martial arts, Western martial arts, certainly comes from. Uh, well, we're reenacting people reenacting. Reenactments. Reenactments. Right. <laughs> Which is sort of a strange thing. But, um, but yeah, they, it definitely goes way back. Uh, per Highlander, I didn't even watch the thing because the first video, or not video, the poster I saw showed a guy with a katana and said Highlander. And I said, this looks dumb. I'm not going to watch it. Um, because anybody who has a sword across their back, I decide, ah, they don't know what they're talking about, so I'm moving on. It's it is it it's a really awkward way to draw a sword. <laughs> it really is. Now it was done uh, for extremely long swords, but usually they carry a shorter one by their side, which you can actually get out fairly easily. Um, but anyway, I'd love to pick up on a couple of things you yes, just please. said. Um, so that's resurgence. That um, we're enjoying a resurgence right now. It's it is, um, and to look forward, we're only. Uh, we're on the upswing, but we're starting to see like professional sports treatment of mm-hmm. sword arts, we're especially longsword, which is a two-handed sword. I will just say it's not. If those of you who love Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax was did a lot of things right, but he wasn't a scholar for historical weapons. Um, that's a two-handed sword, uh, you generally, and there wasn't anything that was usually called a two-handed sword. It's just. Close enough, um, but well, they're doing this as but... with a yeah. We're doing cage fighting basically with swords, uh, and so that's hitting mass media. But also the number of scholars who are actively pursuing uh, the complexities of the arts, and the number of people who are being able to study with them and actually advance the, the real. You need thousands of people training in order to start winnowing out what works and what doesn't. Uh, as an instructor, I have to see dozens of people try a certain drill before I realize it's a terrible drill. It only worked for me. Uh, so you, there's a lot of learning that we're having to go through in order to teach people how to be martial artists in the Western traditions. I noticed that the Russians, especially, are really getting into this. Stuff. Yes, they're they're very they're becoming very nationalistic and getting deep into their history after you know 70 years of of Soviet you know trying to wipe that out. Um, they're really getting back to their roots, and they're doing the cage fighting in armor with steel swords. Mm. Like, of course, Russians by definition are crazy, <laughs> but you know, wow, 
that's really cool. That's really high-grade crazy. High-grade crazy. High crazy. Yeah, high-grade, well-trained, invested crazy. And there's probably alcohol involved. Before <laughs> <laughs> I, I go against one of those guys, I want a lot of vodka. Thank you. Can I, can I yes, just pick please. up on the Victorian portion? Because yes. we touched on uh, ha and we've touched on Alfred Hutton. Uh, and I want to stop, pause in that space and just point out how important the Victorian scholarship was. Uh, it was another resurgence, but uh, the beauty of the internet today is it's, it's democracy. Everybody who has access to a library can get information about this, the best information about historical weapons. For the Victorians, classically, the English Victorian, uh, it was generally uh, white men who are educated and can belong to a club. Therefore, they're moneyed. Uh, but there were some wonderful people doing just what we're doing now, rediscovering these books, uh, figuring out how to make the weapons, or taking them out of the British Museum because they own part of it, and they go in and they or, get these weapons. Or grandfather's play. castle. Exactly, or right, right. Oh, yeah, these are the guys who still have it. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> Hanging on the wall, what the heck? Yeah, I, I, I thought about sharpening it, then I decided to go hit Lord Bentley with it instead. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so they went through this resurgence. There's a wonderful book by Tony Wolf, who needs to get credit for uh, being one of the uh, major proponents for Bartitsu, which is uh, a s collective martial arts of the uh, late 19, early 20th century. Uh, Barton Wright uh, makes a, a fighting system that includes some sword arts. Not, fo not a focus, but it's a, definitely a, the first arguably mixed martial art in England. Interesting. So, well, I mentioned jousting, and since that's something I do, at least I dabble in, uh, I wanted to point out more into something uh, with that, is that with both jousting and with fencing, you have a very strong difference between what you might call scholarly uh, interest in trying to reproduce uh, what was done in you know, 500, 400 years ago, and then there's the theatrical, which is very, very different. And I'm sure you could go on at length about it without ranting too much. Without, actually, I, don't, I won't rant. I love... Oh, darn. Yeah, I, well, I'll just... I'll merely call out the differences with my very prejudiced opinion. That works. Um, the uh, theatrical... Is, your job is... A, I've been called in to do a lot of uh, fight choreography over the years. Uh, and the job of a fight choreographer is to tell a story. And all I care about is making that story captivating and driving, capable of driving the drama. Uh, the problem with that is that it has nothing to do with reality. Uh, there's no truth or interest in a real sword fight for the most... I shouldn't say there's no truth. There's no interest in a real sword fight. It's all truth. That is to say, quickly somebody should fall down and stop being violent, whereas there's no time for cunning language. There's no opportunity for sudden turnabouts. Generally speaking, I want to be the most violent, best trained, biggest, fastest person on the field, destroy my opponent, and get on with whatever it was we were supposed to be doing. And there's not a good story in that. Whereas the fight choreographer comes in and uh, explodes a moment into something that is reaching to a deeper truth, uh, something beautiful or interesting or tragic. And that gets some, something interesting that the theatrical fencing is much takes much more time to mm. go through. Theatrical jousting uh, actually goes faster 
because people don't want to sit around and wait for, oh, well, they're changing lances, they're doing this, that, the other thing. They want to go boom, boom, boom. Oh, I want to see the, you know, the burning axe handle go off into the crowd. Um, like it or, I do want to see that. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what people want to see as opposed to the reality. You is want where, to see exploding lances and people flying off of horses. Right. Whereas in reality, you'd rather not do that, at least come flying off the horse. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. The, the interest, or shall we say, the demands of the customer are very different between theatrical and scholarly. Absolutely. Well, I think you run into the same problem with gunfights. People think, oh, Old West gunfights. And a good gunfight in a good movie or TV show takes a little time, to, like you say, to tell that story. Hmm. A real gunfight is done. It's done. Like the real yeah. gunfight at the OK Corral took like 20 seconds or something like that. There just wasn't much yeah. time. Because when people start shooting at you, people start getting hit and dying. And, and they leave. And they, yeah, <laughs> they leave one way or another. Yeah, it usually stops the action. And that's the whole point of any of this interaction is to stop the other guy from doing what he's doing that's going to harm you. Um, the quickest, most effective way possible. So theatrics versus reality have very different uh, endpoints. Violence, real violence is, uh, depending on your tastes, horrifying and fast yes almost instantaneous and with any weapon uh, yeah it doesn't matter what whether it's fists or right. uh, knives or guns whatever um, also we have some other I just want to mention some other modern uh, mar western martial arts that have become popular uh, we talked about in an earlier episode of, um, of Gordon's gun closet the cowboy action shooting which you know that's that's a martial arts you know you're practicing shooting at people but it's actually targets instead of actual people which is a good thing reproducible reproducible yes and then there's cowboy mounted shooting which you're shooting blanks uh because it's awkward when you shoot your horse in the back of the head uh with the real bullet it's awkward when you shoot him with a blank too but anyway it's less <laughs> less dangerous um but anyway this moves me on to um well, I want to talk with you a little bit about Clang. I know you weren't terribly involved, but some of the issues with that, the, the background um, of harnessing modern technology to allow a greater study of antiquity. Right. The general problem of trying to make a video game that even comes close to reproducing the actual experience of using bladed weapons. Right. And yeah, so Clang was, an, an, I think was, an effort to, uh, alas, um, develop a realistic video game that addressed swordplay. And the complexities of that are really hard. Uh, first of all, the complexities of swordplay. It takes me a, a good six, eight months to get somebody competent at just doing basic techniques with a sword. Fight, you know, the exchange of blades, the clash of combat is slow to learn uh, and subtle. And I want my video game to capture the complexities of engagement, but I don't want to spend eight months learning on the learning curve to play my video game. So uh, the ability to, and some of the challenges are, how does, how does footwork play in? How does body posture? Uh, do I read strength and impact with, uh, with a swing? Uh, what are the techniques of uh, converting a historical martial art, a mode of violence, to a modern recreation? And uh, it's, it's 
We have amazing technology. I'm not, I'm not sure that we're there yet at a consumer level. And, when we, and the other problem is, if I want to go play that video game, how do I make sure it's fun? You know, it's that problem of uh, theater and reality. I don't ever really want to be in a real sword fight. I'm happy no. to never know what it's like to hit someone with a sharp weapon. So far, so good. Was it uh, um, <clears throat> para, pax, Parabellum or something like that? Anyway, if you want peace, prepare for war. So you're prepared. I'm prepared. So there should be, things Peace-like. should be very peaceful. Um, but I, uh, I know that the military has, for a number of years, used video interactive um, methods for training their troops for uh, work in the field. And they have rifles and machine guns that are all set up with hydraulics so that you get recoil and sound and you can aim at a certain point on the projected screen and you know you can see the impact of your bullets and all this kind of stuff um at the end it tells you how many you missed (laughs) (laughs) sadly yeah it it, yeah it's it's devastatingly accurate (laughs) in its uh portrayal of what you've done wrong it's cool though you have to change magazines even though you're not actually launching anything downrange it's it's Mm. pretty awesome yeah you get 30 shots and then it's like ah oh oh, shoot yeah i gotta pull the swap magazines anyway um so we do we have that for modern warfare and i guess there's the issue of changing that into something for entertainment right and not only entertainment but the complexities i think i don't want to belittle guns but i think the complexities of a sword the reason maybe the reason that we are still fascinated with sword play is because i can learn how to i can learn the army taught me everything i needed to know about a weapon in you know about two days Mm -hmm. and in two days uh Tomorrow, I'm going to teach some people everything I can teach them in uh, about an hour, two hours, and we'll be scratching the surface, and they're not even close to being proper <laughs> fighters. Oh, absolutely, and that's the reason guns took over. Uh, <laughs> in fact, in Elizabethan period, there were a number, speaking of scholarship, there were a number of uh, works written by, well, Sir, uh, Sir Roger Williams and Humphrey Barwick were proponents of the musket, as opposed to Sir John Smith, who was talking about the joys of the longbow and the virtues of the good English longbow as opposed to these, you know, horrible European weapons. And the bottom line was, yeah, a bow is a better weapon in a lot of ways if you've got a man who's been trained since childhood to use it. However, I can take some peasant straight off the plow, hand him a musket, and in about four hours, he'll be shooting it. And, you know, in an era which was beginning to get into mass, not exactly conscription, but much larger armies, this became a real issue. And, yeah, our English bowmen are marvelous, the ones who can actually do it. And when they die, we don't have anybody to replace them with. Kill off your musketeer, you can hand that musket to the next guy down the line. Exactly. And there's another guy behind a plow somewhere. (laughs) And we just, or, you know, scraping, you know, stuff off, a scr- off the street to try to survive. Here, I've got a job for you. Go out and get killed. So, um, so the, you know, there were very, very good reasons why firearms were considered superior weapons and had nothing, you know, nothing to do necessarily with the difference in power. It's just how easy they are to train. It's probably the reason that all of my sword and sorcery games, video games, are also still using the same principles that were designed for first-person shooters. 
Ta-da. Yeah. Absolutely. Th- I can use my thumbs and I pull triggers to swing swords and walk. And that's, a, that's something that game mechanics can deal with, whereas the complexities of movement, and I should say, Clang was all about getting real. Yes. Was, you were going to stand and swing and move and turn and face, and the twitch of your left hand with, combined with the steadiness of your right created a fulcrum that whipped that sword through. Uh, that's really a lot of processor. It's a lot of processor, but it's a, a marvelous idea. I mean, hopefully in another 10 or 15 years, the technology will get to the point where it can be. I want to play that game. I do, too. I really do, too. I want to, I want a holodeck. I also love playing with, like, my sword. And the beauty of English backsword is still out there. We're teaching, I'm teaching Cutlass two days a week uh, to a lot of amazing, enthusiastic, uh, dedicated scholars who are doing great work. So we've got both ends there. Absolutely. So do we have any questions from the audience while we're at this point? I know that, uh, John, you have to have some kind of good question. You, a rude comment? Not even any of those. Ah, that's terrible. OK, we do have some comments. Yes, ma'am. OK. Have you seen a resurgence now that, that Pirates of the Caribbean came out last year, you know, 10 years ago? and? The subsequent movies, like people wanting to learn, like the pirate type fighting. Yes. So I'm doing Cutlass, which is a wonderful kind of boarding action, swash more more what we think of as swashbuckler kind of action. Uh, my my, as I come to the brink of fifty, I have to admit that I think I'm wanting to be more of a pirate. Uh, with you apolo- already are, my dear. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> with apologies to Jimmy Buffett, who would say I should have done this ten years ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there is, like, there, you can go to a very, there, there are Western martial arts and, and historical martial arts conferences across the country that uh, do offer amongst their uh, programs boarding actions and, you know, cutlass and the use of, uh, you know, close quarters ship combat uh, is definitely a thing. So Anybody teaching boarding axes? They are, there, is, there are boarding axes and cutlass, yes. All right, uh, so, I like that. Yeah, so the, the, there's an awful lot of fun stuff that is out there. Uh, and definitely, I think for every um, genus or uh, genre of fantasy, there's, or, or fiction, I shouldn't say fantasy, uh, or historical enthusiasm, there's probably the, the aligned Western martial art. So, yeah, they're there. Uh, I, I'm certainly there and enjoying it myself. I figured there would be that, and then, of course, more recently, like the, uh, the, the Matrix and, you know, the katanas and the martial, that Asian martial arts. Right. Uh, what, uh, do you, are you teaching any of that, or is that a little Asian too far? Scene, or? It's a different, there are, um, there, those schools, it's a great, I'm going to segue here. Um, we have strong Asian arts traditions that have continued uh for a bit longer, um, because of the history and the complexities of, of social issues, like they didn't allow everybody could get a gun in Europe, you know, certainly in the U.S. Uh, after a certain point, guns were carefully restricted in Asia, so they stayed with either uh, the sword arts, fighting the weaponed arts, or unarmed combat a lot longer, at least long enough that it became popularized and caught up uh, with printing, 
which was how you disseminated all your information and got smart. Which is a long way to say, they're going, the sword arts are going beautifully. Iaido, Ke, uh, Kendo, help me with that. Oh, uh, but there are a variety yeah. of really good, serious Asian art systems that have been going for centuries. I don't need to teach that. I'm not really smart at that. Uh, there's some, there are people who can trace their lineage back for centuries who are still doing that. I wouldn't try to do a katana because it would be disrespectful to the person who actually knows how to do it. Now, on, on that note, I wanted to make mention of a gentleman of our acquaintance, Mr. Irie. Yes. Um, who I was talking to a few years ago about, you know, he's a, a, an enthusiast of the katana, uh, quite good with it. And he just made the offhand comment that in a fight between him and Mr. Barnett, he said, oh, Nathan would kill me, no doubt. In a, in a straight up fight between a katana in his hands and a broadsword in Nathan's hands, he said, oh, Nathan would kill me. Just the techniques are so totally different. We've, so, and we've tried... They're different weapons, right? And they're, every weapon actually needs to be taken into consideration in its time. Uh, my, we have... I will, with apologies, um, people can send me hate mail. We've romanticized the katana to the point of uh, absurdity in our culture. Yes. Um, it's mysterious and foreign and uh, exotic. Uh, Almost Italian. Uh, no. <laughs> it's not that bad, sir. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, but, if you want to talk about Highlander and its effect on popular culture, right. that movie, I think, helped mythologize the katana more than anything in the past hundred years. Interesting. Um, but, yeah, so uh, my, my backsword is 39 inches. The, good, uh, the standard katana is a bit shorter. My, my weapon's wielded one-handed, which has... I'm, the two-handed weapon has leverage advantages, but my one-handed sword has reach. And so I can, Scott and I did play, uh, and I fared pretty well with sword in one hand against katana. If I took sword and buckler, which is to say a small shield and my basket-hilted broadsword, uh, there wasn't really much opportunity for him because I can parry and counter. And that was a standard combination. You'd walk down the street with your buckler and sword on your side is the origin of the word swashbuckler, was your sword would swash and smack your buckler, and you'd have this cacophony of boys out on the street, and uh, you, knew, you knew there was going to be trouble because the swashbucklers were out. But and in fact, in the Froggy Went a Courtin', it's a sword and buckler by his side wow. were the original words. So going all the way back. He was a swashbuckler. Indeed. Uh, Jason, is it? Yeah. You had a question. Yeah, the, when there was the resurgence of the use of the, uh, the sword by the English officers, was did that carry over at all to improve close quarters for the rank and file, or were they just left with bayonets and butt strokes? I, I'm happy to say something on this one and then defer to Jordan, who has deeper knowledge. A, uh, the weapons that they carried were notoriously ineffective and mocked even within their ranks, as a rule, because they pretty much acknowledged that if an officer was having to draw his sword, it was dark days. Um, worse yet, they have always complained that fighting men knew, how, knew nothing about how to handle a sword. Um, fighting men in the 16th century, as the 20th century, don't know how to use swords. Uh, it was an effete weapon system, usually carried on for fanciful notions, and at the time when you actually needed to be able to use a sword, you started just figuring it out. 
But let's remember that the weapon on the battlefield was never a sword. It was a pike. Right. Swords are always secondary. But <clears throat> to follow on that, the, um, a lot of the resurgence and in interest in the sword in the 19th century came because of the British uh, interaction with India. That the, uh, who had a, the Indians had a very strong uh, tradition of using the sword and saber. And the English were finding themselves uh, getting pasted pretty good by these uh, Indian, just uh, private soldiers uh, who actually knew what they were doing. So uh, one of the reasons that like, officers started, enlisted men started wearing chain mail on their, uh, on their jackets on the, the shoulder was because uh, it started out taking horse curb chains and sewing them there because they were actually getting hit there a lot by the Indians who knew what they were doing. And so there was this um, demand really in uh, instruction for the British. And of course, they couldn't go to the Indian sources. That just wouldn't be done. It's not puka. Uh, so they had to go back to their own history to find out how to do this stuff. And that's where Hutton... Hutton discovering silver. And that's why that was such a big deal. Um, and uh, so you, sir, you had a question? I was curious about, about the unarmed um, Western martial arts combat. Would that be discussed too? For, I don't know how much we would have be Especially for for not facing back in the in those times, so, um, swords were very expensive, and and only the wealthy many weapons were unavailable to all but the wealthy. So I figured there's also certain unarmed combat from the Middle Ages that the peasants had, and that may have carried on. Has that been carried on with the resurgence in Western martial arts? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we've uh, Western martial arts has every judo, aikido, throw, grip, lock. Uh, joint you know pressure point that uh, is popular that you can go to a sensei or a, a you know a kung fu instructor a sifu to uh, learn is beautifully documented somewhere in a 16th century manuscript from England not England sorry usually Italy or Germany so those traditions are were alive and well and doing just beautifully in those early arts wrestling was important uh, those guys in armor needed to know how to throw each other down because you couldn't really finish the fight until you got the guy on the ground and could ram a dagger into his eye slit of his visor. The prey adieu. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> yeah. So that tradition's alive and well. Wrestling is always important with the lower classes who are less, less wealthy and don't carry around big fancy swords. And it's gone through to boxing, and there's a modern uh, pugilism tradition uh, just this last weekend, we lost one of the best pugilists in the world uh, in Ken Franger, who died uh, unexpectedly on, uh, over the last weekend. Oh, I had so, no yeah, we um, lost. There are a handful of um, people who are really still focused on the pugilism arts, with bare-knuckle boxing, the real stuff, not the stuff with pads uh, and gloves. And we just lost one of our uh, treasured scholars in that field. Uh, but uh, the, another one of those gentlemen is Tim Riziki, who is also here in the Northwest. Uh, again, we are in the sweetest spot I can think of for, for uh, historical martial arts. Uh, and Tim is just a wealth of knowledge for that unarmed combat system. He's a good madman. Miss Catherine. Um, you talk about the sportifying of the historical um, martial arts, particularly with edged weapons. Uh, especially with the Russians, which is interesting because the Russians were the ones who kind of 
up the sport of uh, Olympic-style fencing. Do you anticipate or have you seen um, a kind of with the rules um, of edged weapons in this new kind of sportifying of Western martial arts that, um, that was already done for Olympic-style fencing? Always. It always happens. It, it's gaming the system. As soon as, in fairness, as soon as you have a tournament that matters, and I think this probably safely goes back to the 16th and 15th centuries, um, if you were playing for blood... Gladiators. Would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, I, I can go all the way back. As soon, as soon as there was a reason to fight that wasn't just because you really, really, really wanted to kill this guy, there was a plan to uh, figure out how to win by the rule system. Uh, so you'll see that. It's expected. It's reasonable. Um, is it destroying the fighting arts? Oh, maybe. Maybe if everybody, if everybody is doing longsword decides that they want to start competing for money, uh, then the people who are doing it for that reason will, ga will game the system. Yeah, and this is like jousting. You have some guys who are jousting for prizes, and they game the system, and they hurt their horses because they don't care because they've got to make their mortgage payment. Uh, they don't care if the horse is too tired or hurt or whatever. They'll just do it. Uh, and they'll do it when they're, they're hurt themselves. Then there's the people who are doing it because, well, this is just such a cool thing to do. I'm going to do it right. You're always going to see the gaming of the system, again, when there's money involved. And there's some reason other than just because it's really cool. And I, Well, I think the athlete, and I'm going to be the devil's advocate, the athlete who's doing it because they love fighting and this is how they're taught to fight, you know, this is how you win, well... You know, racers practice to win races. Uh, fighters win, practice to win fights. Uh, so I guess the guys who are doing this longsword system are going to acknowledge that they've got a fighting system. These are the rules, and this is how it works. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for being here, and I want to thank Mr. Barnett for joining us today. An honor, sir. Such a pleasure. So where can people find you online, Nathan? Oh, um, so if you're in Seattle, um, you would like to check out lonin.org for bwahahaha, plus a whole host of other fighting arts. Longsword is alive and well and uh, living in Sanka at, uh, down in Georgetown in Seattle. I'll put links for all those things in the show notes. And if you happen to be somewhere on the Olympic Peninsula, embassyarms.org is uh, my school here in Port Townsend where everything is beautiful and sent back a century. Absolutely. So uh, there we have it. So thank, thank you very much for all for joining us here today. Thank you, Nathan. And uh, we'll see you again next week, or at least you'll hear from me again next week on another exciting episode of The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash THF. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow. <laughs>